Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Keith Robinson. Keith is a tenured spec writer. He's a fellow of the Construction Specifications Institute in the U.S. and a fellow of Construction Specifications Canada. Keith is someone who I've regarded as a mentor in the specifications world and really excited to have him on the podcast. So Keith, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. This is, sounds like it's going to be fun. I hope so. With that lead up, you got to pay it off with a little bit about your past. So talk a little bit about your career and, and what, what brought you here. Well, I've been writing specs for four, over 40 years. And I, I got into writing specs because the, the first architect I worked for said, yeah, Keith, your handwriting, it's illegible. We can't have you drawing, writing on our drawings. Maybe we'll make you a spec writer. And that same person who got me into writing specs actually said, you'll always have a job. You'll, you'll either die writing or you'll forget the words. One of those things came down to, yeah, as, as a mentor, he actually had uh, dementia and actually forgot the words. So <laughs> there you go. Prophetic. So uh, across those years of writing specs, though, you've done more than just write specs. I mean, you've been involved in the writing of you know, Canadian master specs. You've been involved in all sorts of projects. Talk a little bit about kind of the breadth of what you've done before now. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point because I, I am probably one of the few specifiers who actually writes. Most of us are editors and are good subject matter experts in the areas that we know, but I actually write specs from scratch. I also teach how to write specs. I've written project specifications, both long form, short form, elemental form, work results form, you name it. I've pretty much contributed to that writing style. Projects-wise, any, anything from you know shopping centers, which is where I started my career, to my, the close of my career where I was writing for you know multi-billion-dollar rapid transit systems, hospitals, laboratories, and and very complex you know we'll we'll call it secret service work. Uh, you're locked in a room and you have to write specs from scratch, and you're not allowed to take anything in, and you're not allowed to take anything out. So, wow, okay, that's an intense way to write a spec. Yeah, so, it all has to come off the, off the off the top of the head. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You know, the reason I wanted to bring you on is obviously to hear from you, but specifically, I think we take a lot of things in you know in business for granted. Like this is how it's been done, and this is what we do, and we don't ask, okay, well, why? And I thought you were one of the you know most qualified people to answer a simple question, and that is, what is a spec? Like, what is it? What are we doing? What's a spec there for? Why did we do it that way instead of some other way? But let's just start with that. If you were to define specifications, obviously construction specifications, how would you do that? That actually is, is a really good question, and it could be complicated, but I'm going to give you the elevator speech. Two things a specification does, and it's so simple. It describes the quality of the workmanship, and it describes the products used. Now, filling in all that, all, all that content gets a lot more creative and a lot more verbose, but what it comes down to is a spec has to convey those two quality aspects or it's not a specification. You failed at your job. So if you can't adequately describe a product and make it competitive, you failed. You know, I've heard specifications described as work results as well. Certainly that's what master format is supposed to be categorizing. How does that square with your definition? Well, work results, that is the whole nature of master format. And work results is you're focused on what you need to describe the work for the project, which is products and workmanship. It's not about the product as much as it is about the entire way that product fits into the project. You have to coordinate it between different other contributors to the project. 
You have to be aware of how the trades work together. You have to be aware of the limitations of the skills involved. Oftentimes, if you're writing in a remote location, are those skills actually available in that location? Is it the right product? Sometimes you've got limitations put on you by your client. I did a gamma knife project, which is basically a nuclear cannon that, that fires radiation into people's brains in a focused way. And even though we're in Canada, the U.S. security agency definitely were interested in us bringing in a, a, a cask full of highly radioactive material. So yeah, it, it really depends on what you're doing. And I want to dig into what you, when you say workmanship, one of the things that, that happens in construction, of course, is there is a divide, either contractual or process or just the people, between what the specifier and by extension the AE firm are saying to do versus what the contractor is saying, okay, this is how we're going to execute it. So can you talk a little bit about how when you say workmanship, you're describing something but you're not getting to means and methods. You're not getting into to the too specific about how that workmanship is executed. How do you think about that divide? Because I think that's one of the places where things where risk is created and confusion can happen, where the specifier maybe doesn't specify enough and the contractor doesn't know it. Like there's a gap. I've heard the word sk- uh, scope gaps and overlaps is one of the ways that that gets described by contractors. I actually write trade definitions with, with one of our construction associations and understanding that difference is, is huge. Let's dig into it. Yeah. So the one thing that I think the mistake that a lot of specifiers make is thinking they can tell the contractor how to do their work. It's not about how to do their work it's about as much as it is what you expect from the work. So, you know, there's a lot of specifications out there that say, overlap roof membrane three inches over the the selvage edge of this product and that product and seal the ends. And basically it's an instruction on how to install. You have manufacturer's instructions to tell the contractor all that rather than turning around saying, I want a roof that doesn't leak. You have experts in their, in their field knowing how to make a roof that doesn't leak. So why should I spend all my time telling somebody how to install the membranes versus just saying, yeah, you know, I want a roof membrane that doesn't leak. Oh, and by the way, I have also got wind uplift pressures. Could you make sure it stays stuck on the roof when the wind is blowing across it? And that's where the workmanship side of it comes in. And, and that actually is the full extent of the work result then, because I've now described the quality that we're looking for. So it's the role of the specifier to say the results of your workmanship should be this, but I'm not going to tell you how to get there. I mean, are there exceptions to that? Are there exceptions you think where... I need to make sure X gets done this way because of something, whether the client says it or insurance or something, or is it generally saying, look, our job is to say we need a building that performs this way and I'm going to get down to specifics of performance, but I'm not going to go past that. Yeah. And and typically say when an insurance company, and I'm thinking somebody like Factory Mutual, when they turn around and say, here's the limitations to installation, you have to put in fasteners at X spacing and Y grid pattern. And this is what you have to do to prevent a disaster from occurring. Well, it's all written out. So I'm not going to rewrite it. I'm just going to reference that, that particular standard and let the insurance company then deal with it. They're going to send in their own insur- insurance inspectors to make sure it gets built that way. They'll then decide whether or not they're going to provide coverage to that building. 
yeah, there's nothing for me to rewrite so far as that's concerned. There are also owners, you know, who have built a lot of buildings, whether that's a public entity, whether that's somebody like a large corporation, say like a Walmart or a PetSmart or something like that. They have their way of doing things. And typically they're going to have pre-approved contractors that know how they want their stuff installed. Don't change it. This is the way we do it. And it's all written out, again, in their manual. It's a, I'll put it into air quotes, it's a specification of sorts. It's really just an, an installation instruction. And an installation instruction is not a spec. And that's why specs make reference. You always see in, in the execution portion of the specs, install in accordance with manufacturer's written instructions. So why would I repeat any of that? Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that's a really important distinction, the, the difference between installation instructions and specifications. It feels like that might be one of the places where spec writers sometimes go wrong, right? Is that they're trying to, to like, I mean, you've kind of said that in those words, but what I'm teasing out here is the difference between specifying what the building has to do or what it, what it has to, how it has to perform versus the, you know, step-by-step or very specific installation instructions. That's a really key difference, I think. It, it's a very key difference. And probably leads to a lot of failures because the average person who would edit specifications doesn't necessarily understand how the manufacturer's instructions work anyway. Right. So they might actually ask for something which doesn't actually belong in that particular installation, or they might leave something out of the installation, which is typical to a certain condition. Both sides of that is something you really don't want to get involved with because now you've made yourself out to be the expert. And now you're liable for that that decision. And thus a lawsuit is born. And um, thus a lawsuit is born, or at least the very least, a, you know, a claim on your project and somebody's going to be paying an extra and you're going to have an owner that's mad at you and you don't want that. Yeah. Well, th- that's a good segue to the, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about is not everybody listening knows how specs are written. And I think there's, you know, you just mentioned before, which I think may have been surprising to people that you are rare in that you will, you have been known to write a spec from a white sheet of paper. That isn't how they're normally done. You want to talk a little bit about how specs are, are normally created? Sure. Most specifiers start off with a master document of some kind. Either they purchase it through one of the people that sell master specifications, and there are three or four in the U.S. There's a couple up here in Canada. They, they might go to a manufacturer and download specifications, which, by the way, are part of the problem that we have because manufacturer specs also include a lot of installation requirements that the manufacturer is concerned about. But again, it's already written in their, their written instructions. They also tend to be very focused on their products. So what might be in their written specification might not be applicable to somebody else's products. So a good specifier would take three or four of those manufacturer specifications, push them together. It's kind of like the old church joke, you know, where, where does all the donated money go to? You throw it up in the air, whatever lands on the, on the floor ends up within the church and whatever the Almighty wants, he he gets to keep. But that's really the way we we approach specifications writing. How interesting. Well, one of the things that that my own company is focused on is trying to make specs more consumable. And some of why that's necessary, and of course, that came from market feedback, one of them is unavoidable. And that is that it's a lot to look at if you're looking for one answer, if you're looking for one, you know, one part of a spec or one one line or one, you know, one, one little bullet. But another one is that they're not, they're not always written to be read. They're not always written that 
you know, someone who isn't highly caffeinated, highly focused can make sense after this first or second page. You want to talk a little bit about why you think that can be true sometimes? Yeah. Hmm. It's, it's about the choice of words, right? And it's important that words convey intent. It's e- easy, very easy to analyze what is said. It's much more difficult to imagine what is not. So missing words for us are really the key to complete understanding. Specifiers have kind of created rules of C, right? You know, most specifiers will know or, or summarize it as the three C's, clear, concise, and complete. I push it out to clear, concise, complete, correct, and consistent. Because with any complex discussion, you need to frame that discussion about what we're actually trying to convey to to the contractor. Remember who we're writing to, right? That is the contractor. We oftentimes forget that. We either think we're writing for our own egos to protect ourselves, to write to the owner because they're paying for us, our services, But really, we have to keep the end focus being who is the person reading this document. Right. And I think that maybe gets missed, though, is where where we're going. Why do you think that that might be true? I mean, you've kind of said already that that they're writing for the owner. Do you think that that's the owner or the internal architect? Yeah, and and it's incorrect. Yes, I mean, there's the the architect's vision. You have to write to try and solve that. You've also got the owner's requirements for a functional building. So you have to keep that in mind. But you're you're getting down to the point where none of those things become possible unless you're writing to the person who's actually got boots on the ground, putting nails into studs or screws into steel. You have to write to that person. If they can't read it or it looks too complicated, they're not going to crack open the book. If they're used to receiving poorly written specifications, they're not even going to bother opening the book. And that's I hear that from trades all the time. Why should I read this thing? It doesn't really apply to me. All you guys do is copy from one project to another project. In the end, I have to figure it out. If I get it wrong, you make me pay. If I get it right, there's no thank you. You know. It's so funny. I've, yeah, we've heard that as well. And, I, and in a moment, I want to talk a little bit about how you avoid some of that. But first... I want to ask your thoughts on on something I've seen elsewhere, and that is industries and professions start talking like each other, irrespective of who they're who they're supposed to be, you know, addressing. And and you know, and a really bad example of that is if you've ever read a modern philosophy book, they're clearly writing for other people in a philosophy department with with words that are absolutely unnecessarily abstract and difficult to, to penetrate. And specs aren't that bad, however. It is undoubtedly true that spec writers are often writing amongst other spec writers or architects, as you said. I wonder if that's some of it, right? Is that there's just too, often too much referencing people in your own in your own group and not enough interaction with people that are reading it? Do you do you find that 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 may be part of it? Very much so, and that might be a bit of a conversation when you're actually writing from that that white piece of paper. The only way you can truly write is to actually understand what the trade needs. And the only way you're going to do that is to talk to the trade. As a friend of mine, actually, he has a, you know, an epoxy floor coating business. And I asked him one day, could you come over and uh, do my garage floor? He says, uh, no, Keith. He says, what I'll do is I'll sell you the materials. I'll lend you my tools. You can do it. Maybe you'll be a little bit more forgiving the next time you see air bubble pops all over your floor and understand how difficult that is to control. And he was right. And the tools are very heavy and it smells bad and you need ventilation and it's hard, hard work. Right. And once you actually understand that person, 
kind of live in their world for a little bit, then you can write about it. Well, then you want to make it easier so they can get their job done. Exactly. Like, like don't, don't make their job any harder than it already is. Well, and one of the things that you brought up in the past is in response to the, the sometimes stiffness, sometimes not so easy to read specs you've seen out there, you've, you've kind of developed your anti-C. Do you want to talk about what I, I will never use that word again, anti-C. You want yeah. to talk about what your anti-C's are? Yeah, because there's a direct corollary to each one of the five C's that I just said, right? So what we're looking at are the anti-C's, which are confusing, cryptic, complex, clueless, and contrived. You know, and you know, we, we, can, we can actually look at, at each one of those instances. When I look at confusing specs, what I, what I expect to see are run-on sentences, long paragraphs, lots and lots of words. I, I say, don't be afraid of the punctuation mark. You know, take a breath. Right. Use them as they were intended to convey an appropriate level of understanding. There was a great Roman Cicero who, who turned around. I, 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 it's a long sentence, but, but I like the way he breaks it up. Cicero says, when you wish to instruct, be brief that men's minds take in quickly what you say. Learn its lesson and retain it faithfully. Every word that is unnecessary only pours over the side of a brimming mind. Nice. And that's what we have to address. That last part I want to dig into, this idea of pours over the side of a brimming mind, because I think that speaks to what I was saying before about the length of a spec is unavoidable because you're talking about a two-year project. But you've got people whose minds are brimming with all of the things it takes to build, whether that's scheduling or manpower or this or that or the other thing. And you add on to it language that is you know, more than their heads are in the place to, to handle. If you ask them on a Saturday afternoon, they'd be fine but they're not on a Saturday afternoon, or at least we hope they're not. They're- yeah, they're in the middle of a job site and the, you know, the, it's going to rain in three hours time and they've got a general contractor leaning over them saying, when are you going to get finished this job? And then the guy opens up the spec book and says, I can't believe they just asked for that. Oh my God, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting analogy. So what you talked about confusion. Let's keep going through your list. Yeah. Well, there's also the, 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 the cryptic messages, right? A lot of times people see concise and they try to clip off their sentences. And, and again, I am a poet. I actually do slam poetry on the side. But for me, you know, concise exemplifies brevity. But I, I know people that take brevity to a whole new point. And I think about poetry, right? Imagine the, the feeling invoked in a, in a point form poem. Sweetheart, it's raining. It's cold. I am miserable, missing you, see you soon. Says all the feelings, but none of the sentiment, right? So I, I actually don't mind a little bit of, we'll, we'll say verboseness in specifications if it ma- makes it readable and in being readable that people will actually then stick to the end and actually understand what it is you're putting down on the page. Well, and there, sometimes these words link ideas, right? Like you're, they're, they're part of the context that makes one thing link into another. So you're not, you know, it's not just a, to the point you made earlier, just a, a barked out list of points. It's yeah. actually more of a, you know, something that your mind can string together. Yeah. And, and, and that goes back to the complex side of things, right? Complexity. And as you said, you know, as, as a specifications writer, I'm used to talking to architects and engineers. Mm-hmm. Engineers have a different language from architects and architects also have their own vocabularies, which is completely different from contractors. I, I talked to interior designers and there was one friend of mine, she turned around, she actually said to me, she says, 
Keith, why are you talking to me like that? Can't you see my eyes are glazed over? I realized I just started spewing too much technical complexity over a thought process that she wasn't really engaged with. But we do tend to use, because we've been to university and we do all these wonderful things, lawyers are just as bad, by the way, complex words. You know, we say things like, we will endeavor to assist you. Yeah, you know, in, 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 in a very prim and proper way, that's a very good way of speaking. It's interesting. But really what you want to say, we will try to help you. I, again, I, you know, I just all these thoughts that come to mind, I, I, I think about Winston Churchill, who was also a great orator, right? He says, out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. Broadly speaking, short words are best, and old words, when short, are best of all. You know, we have a lot of people, they'll, they'll use jargonism on their, on their drawings or in their specs. They'll, they'll t- write out CCTV. It's like a, it's a part of the system, you know? Yeah. So, but, but we tend to do that. We, we tend to over enunciate, over work our own vocabulary, which in creative writing is great. And when you go to university, that's what they teach you. They teach you all sorts of things. They may not teach you elocution, but, you know, because then we'd all be speaking very proper. But, but they certainly do teach you a way of writing that is not compatible with people who haven't gone to university. And you really need to speak to that language, the language of the common person. Well, even even people who have, irrespective of whether they went to school or not, there's also the reality that it takes longer for your mind to process a highly abstract or or not very normally used word. The fluency of speaking plain English just means people don't have to think as hard. And until we sit to the point you made earlier about you know, heads already brimming over to the degree you're speaking in a fluent, easy way. People are going to be able to capture it, grab it, and move on, as opposed to their brains naturally are going to spend more time deciphering words they don't use a lot. And that's yeah. just that alone is a big deal. I mentioned before philosophy, I, I got a little bit of a vocabulary myself, and I got to be honest, man, it was like reading Shakespeare. It doesn't mean you can't read it, but my God, it was horrible. You know, even Shakespeare's the same thing until you get into the flow of it. If somebody, if you pick up, if you don't read Shakespeare a lot, you pick up a Shakespeare, you know, play right now, it takes like a full act for my brain to get into a, being able to read like that. And I think that that's some of what we're talking about here, right? Is that, that by using, and I don't want to overstate it, but, but by writing and, and using things that are, are overly stilted or, or less frequently used, you're creating a natural barrier, even to a lawyer who doesn't read this sort of thing all day long. As educated as someone needs to be, these are still a bunch of words that they're not used to using or certainly phrases that they're not used to using. So I think that's at least some of what we're talking about, right? Absolutely, yeah. If, if, you, if you throw speed bumps into the flow of information, you're going to break up that comprehension. And what you want to do is to write in a flowing way that aids comprehension. That might even be coming down to the type font that you use, the white space versus the black space on the page, things that just allow the eye to see the concept and flow naturally along lines. In the old days, you know, the, the, we used to base all of our typing skills on courier type. Well, the courier type was used because they had little tail, tails and, and legs on them because in, in, in the way the typewriter worked, you know, the letters would be up and down, up and down, up and down, which made it hard to read. But those little lines on the bottom of the, of the letters kept your eye flowing along a line. Yep. There's no need to use that in, in, in modern printouts because 
the, ty- the type is straight. E- even the, the old non-serif text that we now use, Helvetica and Arial, all the time you see that. It's not an easy-to-read type font. Something more like Clan, you know, which has got slightly more rounded and better gray balance. It's not all black. It's also economical on ink when you're printing things out. But it's just easier to read, which means the more you make it accessible, the more of the document people will read. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Well, Keith, I'd love to close with what you tell your students, because one of the things that you do is, is actually teach people how to, how to write specs. What is your advice for students when it comes to making specifications consumable? It's the old principle, kiss. Keep it simple and stupid. You know, that's really what it comes down to. Don't get too full of yourself. Learn from the trades. Don't write specs in isolation. When you're writing, it takes years and years and years, of course, because you've got to build those relationships. But don't write in isolation. Give yourself time to write a good spec. Love it. Well, that's a great place for us to end. Keith, I want to have you back, but this is a great podcast. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, it was great. You know what? I, I'll, I'll nerd out on a podcast if I can talk specs. If I know people yeah. are listening on the other end, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Awesome. Thanks, Keith. All right to you.